Welcome back to the Loop Ventures Frontier Tech Podcast, talking about technology addiction still. And I have my guest, Sean Higgins, on again from Better You. Uh, He joined us about a week ago, and we talked about technology addiction. We sort of did, I would call it a 101 on technology addiction, kind of what the problem is. And today we're going to go into the 102 level course. So we're going to dig into some of the methods that companies use. And I think some of the ways that both we like to counteract those methods to avoid tech addiction and ways that people can use to avoid tech addiction themselves. So Sean, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So Sean, last time we sort of set the stage about why tech addiction is such a problem where, you know, so much of our free time, I think if I recall, it was close to 90% basically of our non-working hours were somehow engaged with devices and consuming content. And I'd love to dive in first with how you kind of see companies today leveraging behavioral hacks to keep us coming back, keep us addicted to their products. Yeah, there are so many. Uh, The one that our business focuses on the most is, of course, the menu problem, which is if you control a menu, you can influence the choices being made off of that menu. We kind of believe that one is very fundamental to the issue at its core. But there are so many. Some of the more prevalent ones that I think about are intermittent variable rewards. This is the old slot machine, right? Or the Skinner box study. If you ever saw that one where they had the pigeons in the box and they would reward them with pigeon feed every time they hit a lever. And that one is everywhere in almost every single app. It's in our notification bubbles. It's in our feeds. So that one is very prevalent. The other one that I see almost equally as much wasn't as popular until you know the mid 2000s was really this idea of bottomless apps. So apps that get rid of stopping cues. So, you know, the infinite scroll, we've all seen it on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Really, there's no end, right? You can, you can scroll as long as you want to on Twitter. They will find more content for you to look at. You know, those two, I'd say, are probably some of the more prevalent, but there are so, so many, even on the social side, and really excited to dive in here. When I think about some of those hacks... You know, Facebook, it feels like, was really the pioneer in a lot of cases for doing, I think in particular, the intermittent variable reward component. Um, And I think they knew what they were doing. But in some ways, like they then created like the design standard. Everybody wanted to follow Facebook. So I wonder, do other companies even know that they're sort of doing this or are they just following the leader and they're not really aware of the psychology of it? You know, it's a good question. I've had even folks go as far as to say like, hey, I don't think it's that much of a behavioral hack. I don't think we're doing anything wrong by having the notification bubble this way. This is kind of the standard to your point. It's interesting, right? Like if you look at the Skinner box study and how effective it was on pigeons and you look at slot machines and how much money they made last year, which was more than Major League Baseball, amusement parks, and movie theaters combined, <laughs> you kind of realize that this tactic is pretty effective at separating people from things that they value. In this case, their time. You know, Every time I see that little red dot, I might have notifications that are really relevant to me. I might have so-and-so viewed my LinkedIn profile. You just don't know. And so you're left kind of with that desire to really click that button and see, 
what are the notifications? Did I get something good? Did I get something that was just okay? And it kind of keeps you hooked. It's very hard, especially in 2019, to see a web page that has a notification bubble and not click it. <laughs> yeah, we've been so well trained. There's two directions I want to go here, but maybe first is related to the hacks and this idea of being trained. One thing that we've noticed just in our research is just having a phone on your person in some ways is a hack for these content developers and providers in that anytime, and this is just anecdotal, but anytime you have this like two second or even one second, or maybe it's a nanosecond of boredom, you reach for your device because you know that it will give you the stimulation you talked about. There will be notifications there that you can check. There will be endless scroll piece. So the phone is the enabler sort of of all these things. And the other day we were talking about how it feels like Apple's kind of gotten off easy on the whole tech addiction debate where, you know, Facebook is, I think, at the forefront and Apple, even though the devices, they're so well made and they're these great conduits for addiction, they've gotten maybe just a slap on the wrist and people have said, hey, you should build in screen time. You know, that's sort of been the outcome so far. So how do you think about the device as a mechanism for addiction? Yeah, it's one of the biggest differentiators between this medium and all other previous mediums. You know, a lot of times when I talk to folks about this space in particular, it comes back, they'll say, oh, Sean, you know, didn't they say that about the television or the radio? And it's not like behavioral design is really anything new. You know, there's a reason the milk is at the back of the store, <laughs> right? The store is made for you. The milk would be in the front because it's the number one thing people buy. But the difference is the store doesn't follow you around in your pocket, right? And your phone does. And so it's interesting. You know, if someone were to say, Sean, you know, you have a blank piece of paper here, design something that is going to get people hooked. I think having a slot machine in someone's pocket would be one of the things you would come up with that would probably be towards the top of what you would create if that was your end goal. And it's funny because that's almost you know what we have between the intermittent variable rewards and just the fact that our devices are so prevalent, leaving them behind or, or even like when you misplace your phone, it's panic. <laughs> yeah, there's like this friction element. I like the mention of TV or radio. Like for us, we don't have a TV in our bedroom. And I think that it's significantly changed the way that we watch TV from when we lived in you know a small apartment. At night, we end up reading books, which we enjoy more anyway. But when you create friction to engage in a behavior and somehow like putting down your phone or having your phone with you is the least frictionless thing you could do, it certainly is a very big, I think, impact. It's like having cigarettes in your pocket versus having cigarettes in a lockbox where you have to enter a code. It will kind of break the cycle, I think, in a natural way. Absolutely. You know, it's really the power of stopping cues, right? So a stopping cue is a signal that I should take a moment to think about, is the thing I'm doing right now actually what I want to do? And it's so huge, you know, to some extent, what all those bottomless apps, you know, infinite scrolls, a lot of the social media apps do is they remove those cues. It used to be, even on Facebook back in the day, you would scroll and scroll and scroll and then there'd be a spot where you would stop and that was it. You're like, oh, time to go to something else. And when you remove all of those cues, it becomes very unclear that you're actually even making a choice by continuing to scroll. You're just doing what you were doing before. It almost becomes uh, second nature. But when you add that element of intentionality, it's very easy for you to get your time back 
and use that time more intentionally. Yeah, it's like the Netflix autoplay, I think, is a great example, too, of stopping cues. They've just sort of totally removed it. They've already made the choice for you. It was so funny. Um, the CEO of Netflix, I always remember this. He said, you know, who's your biggest competition? And he listed like, you know, Facebook and YouTube. And the number three was sleep. That was his third biggest competitor. <laughs> That's and scary. I said, oh man. Yeah, it's very like telling of kind of the company there because they're after, you know, attention, right? And those eyeballs and you know, people spend seven, eight hours a night sleeping. So that's a big opportunity for them. That's so tough. It, occasionally, I've done as much as I can or I've done a lot to try to avoid tech addiction. But I know I and many people still find themselves at night in bed. You pick up your phone and there's plenty to look at there. And it cuts into your sleep time. And every time after I do it, I'm just like, that was so dumb. You know, the 10 minutes was, it would have been better to just go to bed. But it's funny. Yeah, I hadn't heard that sleep thing before. It's interesting to bring up. He was on the record at like an earnings report. Someone asked him this question. He was like, well, it's sleep. Sleep is our third biggest competitor. <laughs> okay. Scary. That's indicative of the problem. Totally. One piece in there too, kind of when you're going to sleep, maybe coming back to you know the menu problem briefly, a lot of times just picking up your phone, all the options you're going to see on your phone are options that tend to keep you there right? So whether it's Netflix, I'm browsing or looking through other options, your phone isn't actively going to tell you, you know, hey, Sean, it's time to go to bed right now. And that's one of the pieces that's very challenging. It's almost like this rabbit hole we get into. It's really because we pick up the phone in the first place, because maybe we have nothing to do, or we're kind of fidgeting in an elevator. But then putting it down has become pretty difficult. It's interesting. We've been thinking about partly the sleep problem, but the idea of having trouble putting down these devices in the context of this current self and future self dynamic, where your current self is experiencing something in the moment. And in some way, you could argue that by engaging and continuing to engage in some content, the current self is making this decision because they are being stimulated and they are at some level enjoying the content that they are consuming. And then the future self is reflective. And so it's sort of the Kahneman experiencing and remembering self, but the future self is reflective and says, well, I wish I hadn't spent the 10 minutes on Facebook because I really didn't get that much out of it. And I think it becomes an ethical question then, right? Like which self are these apps supposed to serve because they all serve the current self. They don't serve the future self. They don't really consider the future self because if they did, you wouldn't have Netflix autoplay. You wouldn't have the bottomless scroll that we talked about. So how do you think about the ethics there? Like who should these apps serve? Oh, it's so interesting because one of the things that when folks ask me, you know, what are the most harmful things that apps can do? I have this concept of forecasting error. So it's really interesting in this context of current self and future self because your future self kind of knows what it costs you, right? When you wake up the next day and you go, wow, I'm tired. I shouldn't have been on Netflix that long. You know the cost. But the current self, that's not always obvious. And a lot of times, if you look at what apps ask you to do, there's this like forecasting error that's built in there. When I click on a Facebook notification, for example, Facebook knows my average session time. They could tell me, Sean, like this is going to be five minutes of you on Facebook. But they would never tell me that. They say, oh, Sean, see this one post that someone tagged you in. And it sounds like it's going to be, you know, 30 seconds or 20 seconds. But sure enough, once I'm there, I've got the notification bubble that hits me. I'm going to see something else from someone who you know, is a friend of mine that I'll have to check out. And one thing leads to another. So this idea of kind of current self, really that initial cost, which isn't always clear what it really costs you, 
I think you need to do a better job of both. You know, if you're an app company in 2019, I would actually kind of want to know, like, where am I spending my time most effectively? You know, I think about things like Facebook, who introduced kind of a time well spent feature, but as long as they're the ones measuring what time well spent looks like, they're almost defining it in a way where I would want to define it, you know, as an end user of one of those products. And that's, I think, how you kind of bridge the gap where I can say, hey, was this session helpful to me? <laughs> yes or no? And then start to figure out what does Sean actually want to do versus what can we keep him doing? Yeah, there's sort of like a misalignment of, well, incentives is the easiest part to see because they make money the more time you spend on Facebook, the more ads you're exposed to. But it's almost like a misalignment of information, to your point, where more than anybody, Facebook probably understands what is stimulating to your current self. And they may have some idea of what your future self might think of that stimulation. But that part of the information is imperfect. It seems like the current self component is relatively perfect because they're so good at it. But the future self isn't. So how do you think they could bridge that gap? Like, should they have postmortem sort of like a survey or reflective, you know, engagements where they say, did you enjoy this content? How would you rate your experience of this content? What's the solution? I think it's really interesting because you do need some additional pieces of input to actually bridge the gap there. I think about the power of an AI-based solution and AI-based solution can easily look at time on page, like that's built into the product. They can easily look at what you were consuming and relate what you're consuming and how it related to time on page. But that only will serve up what you'll watch, not necessarily what you'll actually want to be spending your time on. So I do think you need some other questions. Maybe it's asking people what's important to them or, you know, asking this reflective, hey, like, was this piece of content helpful? Do you want to see more stuff like this, less stuff like this? But really giving folks a chance to take a breath and say, yes, this was good or no, this wasn't good, instead of kind of keeping them in that loop of just scrolling on to the next one or auto-playing to the next video. Yeah, it'd be cool to, to see them introduce breaks or something like that in, in the stream. I think that would make a big difference if they did it. And they could use it for feedback. It'd be so valuable. If you think about, you know, what they set out to be, right? This platform that kind of connected people. I think from there, like getting to self-actualization of helping people make the most out of those connections, it's so natural. And by asking some of these questions of, hey, like, was this worthwhile or was it not? They can start to tailor content more effectively towards what's going to be most helpful instead of just general time on page. It's a funny thing. I almost wonder... Obviously, they have economic incentives and they have shareholders and employees that they're beholden to to run a great business. I almost wonder if, if you could create a break type product that maybe is even sponsored. You could even have it as a revenue generating, but also healthy component of the ecosystem. Because obviously, like asking Facebook to do something that is obviously going to impact revenue in a negative way is a hard ask to make because they do have those responsibilities. So I wonder if they have to be creative and try to incorporate monetization mechanisms into health and breaks and things like that in the system. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And when I think about how folks, you know, tend to monetize this type of capability, you know, I think that the ad side is tricky because to some extent, like if I'm having like break sponsored by so-and-so, I have a hard time imagining that that's not going to be another app company that sponsors that. And so you really almost need to have like this paradigm shift in the industry where everyone is going this way. 
for that to really work. You also have like the ability to have like a premium option. I know Facebook has always said like you'll never ever pay for Facebook. But to some extent, maybe, you know, if I had a little bit of a premium subscription or something where I could get these breaks and maybe they have other capabilities too, maybe it'd be worth it to get a little bit of my sanity back. Definitely could be. We've talked a lot about social and Facebook. Obviously, they feel like the biggest probably part of tech addiction. But we've always thought of tech addiction in kind of four or five buckets. There's the social bucket. There's email browser news and gaming is one that feels a little bit different in some ways, but probably a component of it. Are those the buckets you think about too, when you kind of consider tech addiction or are there any other ones? Yeah. I mean, I think about kind of where you're spending your time, right? So you've got productivity apps that are things you're using for work or to go from point A to B. You've got kind of convenience apps, you know, finance apps, But I think, you know, high level, I think those are solid categories. The ones that usually get the most grief in the category definitely are the social apps. But it's interesting, even something like a news app, I don't know if you've ever used like a CNN or Wall Street Journal, but the moment something kind of becomes a source of news for you, like it's very easy for you to not want to miss almost that FOMO factor, right? Like, what am I missing? There's a 5% chance I'm going to miss something important today if I don't go on this app. And so even apps that are kind of as like as innocent as what you'd think like a news app might be, use some of the behavioral hacks that we've been talking about. We're all kind of in it together. For better or worse, it's become this standard that folks have kind of swept under the rug a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up news of that group because when we think about sort of trying to break those down into percentages, which is a crude exercise, but if you eliminate social, how much of the problem do you solve for yourself? And obviously different problems arise when you do that. But I actually think that news is one that people consistently underestimate how addicting and in many ways harmful it can be. And I think email is one where they misestimate how productive having email on a phone really is. So maybe we could dive into each of those. Like the news thing for me is, as you said, you're getting headlines constantly, even from reputable sources. And news, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's turned into this game of entertainment, not really information anymore. And it preys, particularly when it's in the political realm, on emotions. And I think emotions are very distracting because not only does it grab your attention in the moment, if you're angry about something, it's a powerful feeling. Anger is actually addicting, I think, because it gives you this feeling of temporary power. And these sources know that. And so it's hard because people think that news is this productive thing, this healthy thing about being informed of world events. But in in a lot of ways, you can be over-informed. Like there's a lot of things that happen in the news really are not worth knowing about. As funny as that might be to accept. But I think that's one that it's hard to get people to embrace that or understand that. I love it, Doug. I think this idea of kind of leveraging emotion or you know some of these headlines, there was a study that they did. It was actually around notifications. And they said, you know, should it be a notification or should it be an email? And they looked at engagement rates for the same messages and the same types of populations when they sent it as a push notification and they sent something as an email. And they learned that the more interruptive the notification was, the more likely it was to be engaged. It's crazy. Right. I thought about that and I said, huh, that almost means that they're the more emotion provoking kind of in, in a sense that my notification is, the more effective it is for me to get your attention. Yeah. And it almost kind of creates this race to the bottom, 
right? Whereas suddenly, you know, CNN knows that and the Wall Street Journal is that and all these folks know that. And so you see, you know, headlines like, you know, that we've seen where it's things that get folks very upset and very polarized. And they're there essentially because that's how they're going to get your attention. I kind of get it, right? I mean, I think that a lot of these news sites are really wondering what are we going to look like in 10 years if, you know, things like Facebook and Twitter become destinations for news? Like, are we a publisher on those platforms? Do we have our own platform? But the reality of what it's created is this, this race to the bottom, this tragedy of the commons where our attention span is the shared resource that's kind of getting misused here. The hard thing, too, with emotion is it's not just, to your point, like how interruptive can a story be and then evoke that emotion and grab your attention, but emotion also travels with you a little bit. So like you get interrupted and maybe you get angry about a story, but then you're carrying anger for, you know, 10, 15, whatever minutes. And it continues to be distracting even after you stop engaging the content. Yeah. You carry it with you. It is tricky. Like you see a bad headline sometimes. And if it's something that's really core to you, then like the rest of your afternoon, right? You're going into meetings with some of those feelings with you all the way and you can't quite put your finger on it. Email, it feels like, is sort of in a very different end of the spectrum from news then, but I think equally distracting. And and I'd love to hear how you use email. But for me, the reason I think email is more of a distraction than a use is you pick up your phone. I don't know how many times as people hear this, they're probably going <laughs> to smile and kick themselves because everybody does it. You pick up your phone, you look at your messages, you see 10 messages you haven't responded to that you mean to. You read them all and you don't respond to them. You say, I'll get to them later when I get to my computer. And so it feels like that is such a core time function of your email being on your phone is like you want to be able to check in. But what you end up doing is just sort of checking back in on things you've already checked in on. And so I actually think the unproductive nature of that in a lot of cases overpowers the ability to type off a real quick response to someone in real time. But how do you think about email? Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky. Like that is something that I definitely, that happens to me, right? Where I'll be, you know, in a context where I can't really type out an email or I'll get something that requires a little bit more of a lengthy response. The reason I think why this behavior exists is because I'm hoping it's something that I can just say, oh, yep, looks good or nope, doesn't work, right? One of those one-line responses. But more often than not, it is, you know, something that requires some attention that I have to wait till I'm at my computer to handle. I think one of the mistakes that I often made with email was just kind of having it up throughout the day and being able to get pinged. And it is like this idea of interruption again, right? Where suddenly, oh, I got an email. I better check what it is. And that you know can really set you back from where you want to be spending your time. I think folks, you know, they look at their time on email and, and it's even categorized if you look at things like screen time, it's categorized as productivity, which it's kind of misleading. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you're using that time effectively, but especially if you're being reactive to how those emails happen, instead of saying, Hey, I've got a few slots throughout the day that I'm going to look at email. I'm going to crank through email at these times. And then the rest of the day, I'm going to be working on other things. That's where I've gotten to with it is, you know, really trying to focus on right in the morning, I'll look at email at, you know, at nine and then crank out some messages then. And then in the afternoon, I'm also going to be going through things on that side. I think that's a great hack. This, the idea of sort of batching email and having time set aside to just get through as much of it as possible and then ignore it for a while and then revisit it. 
but it's hard because it requires this sort of holistic behavior change. It's not just about how you treat email on your phone. It's about how you treat email and maybe even just communication more broadly, Slack, all these other channels that have information coming into us. You know, you have to treat them all, I think, the same way to minimize that distraction and maximize these sort of unbroken periods of real productivity, you know, real creativity. Absolutely. I think a lot in the sense of, and email has a few things going on. There's the FOMO factor, you know, is this a source of news? Is something important happening on there that I might miss out of? And that is something I think that keeps folks kind of, you know, more engaged than they would like to be. And the other one is this idea of social reciprocity. So, you know, you're working with someone who always like responds to your stuff right away. Well, you kind of start to feel maybe I should respond to this person right away. And it can easily kind of lead you into this. Oh, well, you know, every time I talk to Jim, Jim gets back to me, you know, instantly, I should try to be that way for Jim. And that can also be tricky where, you know, you have relationships that you're really just kind of plugging into just to make sure that you're on par with how they're treating your emails, where I think we would all be better off if we could just agree you know, let's pick times throughout the day that we're going to do this and let's stick to them. Yeah, I think it's so effective. I find too that with younger people, they tend to be usually, I mean, this is generalization, but more responsive. And so, you know, I'm mid 30s. We have a lot of people at Loop who are early mid 20s and they love Slack. I hate Slack because it does have that social reciprocity that you just mentioned of, a Slack feels much more equivalent to a text message than an email. And I think there's that expectation. And for me, it's just like, all right, if you want to have a conversation, let's just get on the phone for three minutes and talk about it. I don't want to have to type through it all. And if it's really important, it probably deserves a phone call. If not, just throw it in my email and I'll get to it when I get to it. So I think that is another hack I think that companies use is that social reciprocity that you mentioned. 100%. I mean... If you think about people, one of the the books I read last year that was really interesting and kind of shaping some of my thought process around this in general was Sapiens, right? Which was all about kind of the evolution of man and like man as the social animal, like social reciprocity, social approval. Like those are things that are kind of so core to who we are and companies know that and they, they use them where it's applicable or where it's advantageous. Totally. So we talked a lot about these behavioral hacks that companies like to use. And Sean, you just mentioned, I think, a great one for email around the idea of batching it in certain times of your day where you just try to get through as much of your communication as possible. What are some other, if we could call them maybe counter hacks, (laughs) that you've used to try to counteract social or tech addiction? There's a lot of good ones that are out there, Doug. I know, you know, obviously having gone through the good phone, which is one of your works there, like there's a lot of interesting pieces that you can kind of use to counteract some of these things. So starting maybe with one of the first ones we talked about, the intermittent variable rewards, right? I would limit your exposure to those. You can actually remove the notification bubbles that you'll see the badges, right, that show up on your phone. So badges, you know, you'll see an app icon and then there'll be a little red circle around it in the top corner. And that is the slot machine at work, right? Did, did you get a good notification? Should you hit this button right now and, and find out? And you can just flat out remove those under your settings. And so that can be a great way to make sure that you're being intentional with your time on device and not just going where the notifications take you. <laughs> that is a great one. It's so easy too. It doesn't impact your experience that much on the phone, except for the better. 
Right. A hundred percent. You pick up your phone with a destination in mind. And then we all have this experience though, where it's a minute later and you're going, wait, why did I do this again? What was I, what was I hoping to do? Cause you've just been hitting those darn bubbles. They're taking you wherever they want you to go. Yeah. I've done the whole good phone, which I appreciate you bringing up. It's something that we did as an experiment. We eliminated social media, even the browser. We eliminated email from our phones at loop for a week just to test it. What would it be like to have a sort of really basic phone where you still had maps and Uber and things like that? And I just loved it so much, I ended up keeping it. And so, you know, I don't have social media on my phone. I think that's another really easy hack that a lot of people have, even since we started talking about the good phone, have brought up with me that said, you know, good phone was probably too extreme for them, which I understand because it is pretty extreme to not have email at this point. But a lot of people have said it inspired me to eliminate social media. And that's a pretty easy step, I think, for a lot of people where they still feel connected through text and they still feel connected through email and they still get pictures and things like that. But they're not spending time on the bottomless scroll sort of apps that you talked about. Yeah, that is a huge one, right? You have those bottomless apps. And if you can eliminate them flat out, suddenly your time doesn't end up going there. Have we ever actually chatted on you know why that was a hack? There was a study in 04 by Brian Wansick. It actually started out being about food. How do you get people to eat more or consume more past the point that they're hungry? So what happens is he gets this control group and he has this big tub of soup and you eat the soup and then nothing happens for the control group. The experiment group, though, there's a tube underneath the bucket of soup. And as you're eating it, it slowly fills up the ideas. You get rid of the visual stopping cue, right? And it's so great because you know, in the experiment, they eat 73% more soup than the control group. These are the identical types of people. And so what it essentially confirmed was, okay, if you eliminate stopping cues, you can get people to go <laughs> a bit further that past the point where they're, you know, kind of quote unquote full or where they would normally stop. That's what you, we see applied now everywhere, every app, you know, whether it's a news app or a social media app, everyone has that infinite scroll kind of capability because they know that's how you increase time on page. So true. I actually, I didn't know that's where the bottomless scroll came from. I thought someone had figured out something in web design and it just felt like a better experience. And so everybody adopted it. I didn't know there was a study behind it. Yeah, there was a study. It was back in 04. Uh, Brian Wansink out from Cornell. He was a, like a food scientist guy. So it was, it was something that you would never expect to, to translate from a behavioral change perspective, but definitely an interesting one to kind of check out. Any other hacks that you've employed that you think have been really effective for you? Yeah, I think the colors on your phone. So grayscale is a great option. It's pretty easy to set up. Because, you know, a lot of times you think about notifications or, you know, alerts and things like that. And it's almost like our phones are <laughs> buzzing at us and flashing at us. We talked about the instant interruption piece earlier, right? The more interruptive it is, the more effective it was at grabbing your attention. And I think if you can tone the colors down on your phone so you're not having bright things like, you know, flash at you all the time, I think it's easier to take those notifications for what they are and get rid of them if they're not relevant to you. So I think the color piece is one that's effective. And you know, directly related to that, the notifications, you're really making sure you're turning off notifications for most apps, unless they're apps that you think are relevant to you. I think people are generally pretty good at this. At least once apps kind of get annoying, they turn them off. But you can go in and, and actually go the other way and say, hey, I want apps to be off by default and enable the apps that I would like to be notifying me. 
Both of those are huge. The grayscale thing, it's funny. It makes watching video so much less attractive. Like you just never want to even pick up YouTube or Twitch or whatever, you know, watching black and white TV, basically. Right, right. <laughs> so that's a good one. And I agree that the notification thing, at a minimum, between that and the badges, you know, setting your badges, I think that's probably the lowest hanging fruit for most people is to just go in and do a check, go through all your applications. Because a lot of times when you download an application and you start using it for the first time, it will ask you to allow notifications. I think a lot of us just default to say, okay, sure, why not? Before you know it, you've got 25, 30, 40 apps that are giving you these notifications, most of which you probably are annoyed by, like you said. So going into your settings and adjusting and really controlling which applications you want to give you notifications and which ones you want to have badges for, I think is a really powerful way to take some control back. This happened to me just over the weekend. So my mom got a, a new phone for her birthday. And so she reinstalled all of her apps. And of course, when she was reinstalling the apps, she gave all of them notification permissions. And so what happened, right, like a couple of weeks in, is she's just getting bombarded. And she calls me up one day, Doug, in almost like a panic state. And I'm like, uh-oh, like what's wrong? What's going on? And it was about the notifications, that she was just getting notifications every five minutes. And half of them were for apps she will use maybe once or twice, you know, a month tops. And it, it was so funny. So going in and helping her set those pieces up so that it is, you know, more proactive and that the apps that she wants to stay in touch with and not just everything that has access to ping her whenever they'd like. That's a great example. <laughs> Perfect example. If people listening take only one message away from this podcast, it's that they should definitely go in and clean up their notifications for sure. Oh, 100%. The one thing that I think is always tricky about managing your phone, it's this idea of, of inconvenient choices. Like your phone gives you a choice. They have to give you the choice of things like removing notifications or going grayscale or apps, you know, give you choices to, you know, you can remove the app or unsubscribe. But the choices that you're always given, at least to me, have always kind of feel like they're inconvenient choices, right? You know, I have to go in and do this thing, or sometimes you don't even know what to do, right? But I think having a guideline of, hey, here are a few easy steps that you can take to actually start getting more bang from your buck out of your phone, you know, what to delete, what to uninstall, and why essentially can really help you go the distance as someone who wants to be using the phone and not having your phone use you. So true. I'm curious. I don't know if you've seen this, but I know on my iPhone, every once in a while, Apple will put an additional message underneath some of my notifications that say, do you want to continue receiving these, basically? So it feels like they're maybe starting to think about how they can help their users a little bit on that front. But what do you think Apple in particular will do, and maybe Google as well, but do you think Apple will take a more proactive role in doing some of these things that we talked about? Yeah, it's tough. I think that what we've seen is really kind of the baseline for digital health and digital well-being, kind of seeing, you know, where your time has gone over a period of time, being able to set up some potential limits and stopping cues. I think those are all interesting things. It's tough kind of for me. It's almost just this inherent kind of conflict, right? Like we talked about it a lot with Facebook. You know, Facebook could set up breaks. Facebook could get rid of their notification bubble or change how they set up their website. You know, there's a lot of different things they could do. But at the end of the day, they're kind of beholden to their shareholders and beholden to that time on page metric. And I do kind of worry about the operating system, the iOS, the Android. I kind of worry about that same conflict where suddenly if your platform 
doesn't lend itself to connect with your users at the scale that it currently does, is it as attractive, right? Or is it as valuable to you? I think that it's just a very tricky dynamic to navigate. So I think what we'll see, we've seen kind of the introduction of, you know, where your time is going. And I would love to see kind of like more predictive tools in the mix there as well. I think that's part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing is because there's just not a really clear indicator that that's something that's going to happen. And I think the incentives really make it tough to move the needle too much on that side. But, you know, I'm always hopeful that you can get some real movement there, whether it's through things like screen time or Google's digital well-being kit that can change how we interact with our devices. Not to give Apple too much credit, but if there's one company that consumers seem to trust to have their best interests in mind, it seems like Apple has been the one that's at the forefront there. But I think to your point, and it's a good point, they obviously still need to sell devices. And the more you use your device, the more that you are engaged with your device, probably the more likely you are to upgrade. And I could even say from personal experience, having done sort of the good phone, I was going to buy an iPhone 10 or XS, I think it was, or maybe a 10R. And I ended up not doing it just because I feel like I use my phone so much less now. So there is actually a very difficult, I think, dynamic for Apple to navigate there. But I do fundamentally believe that it seems like they, at their core, at their culture, do think a lot about their users' best interests in conjunction with the kind of building a long-term business. But there is something that I think is hard for them there, which is less engagement probably means less device sales. hundred percent, hundred percent. It's one of those things that it's kind of goes into, you know, what do you believe? And then how does that impact kind of your core business? Ideally, you'd like everything to be going the same direction, but when it comes into conflict, you know, are you going to double down on, you know, the experience and then, you know, take the hit or, that seems like a, I wouldn't want to be in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a tough one. I'd love to be a fly on the wall though. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe just one last thought to end on, Sean. We've sort of touched on this a few times, but something that we've been thinking about, and I think tech addiction is very relevant and brought it to kind of the forefront for us, is that it really feels like time is probably the most valuable commodity for human beings now, you know, and maybe it always has. But I think this whole trend to tech addiction is really about a battle for our time. And time eventually equates to money, whether we trade time for labor, we work, or we trade our time to do work, or if we trade our time for entertainment with Facebook, eventually they'll show us an ad where we trade our money from our labor. So at some level, like time, it feels like is kind of this thing that's being exchanged all around these various mechanisms. And so helping people find ways to take back control of their time feels like a really powerful, important thing to be working on. A hundred percent. The reason why we do what we do at Better You, we believe that if you can help people make better digital decisions, help them spend their time on the things that matter most, whether that means they're using their devices less or not, maybe I'm on my phone for four hours today like I was yesterday, but I use that time to talk to my parents or to study Spanish on Duolingo, like I always say I'm going to do, like that can be a win too, right? So helping folks kind of allocate their time to what's most important. We think it's the best way to help someone be who they aspire to be, right? That better you, which is really what we're all about. I think time is kind of that resource that when it's all said and done, it's what you look back on and say, hey, you know, how did I do here really? And it's about protecting it. You know, the attention economy 
is very real, but that doesn't mean that it needs your attention. <laughs> so you can use some of these hacks and get it back and put it to good work here. It's very true. Betteryou.ai. You can learn more there. Sean, this was a great conversation. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, Doug. Thanks for having me.